listen to these words from the Acts of the, the Apostles after Jesus ascended into heaven. Then they, the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language the Keldamai, that is, field of blood. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nathan. <coughs> uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Dave Page. I'm um, one of the elders here, and um, I want to welcome you again, and uh, thank you for, for being here with us on a, a beautiful spring-esque morning. Um, for those that have been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series called Legacy, where we've been looking at uh, biblical characters uh, from the Old Testament, New Testament, men, women, uh, some that would be called heroes of the faith and others that are less so. And we're looking at their lives as recorded in the Bible because when we dig deeper, there are commonalities that we share with these people, for better or worse. And so we're able to, to relate to them and, and hopefully to, to learn from them. Last week, uh, James walked us through the life of Samson. Um, and we looked at a man that had incredible blessing incredible opportunity, and he made choices that took him down a road of destruction. But when we looked at him, we saw a lot of flaws that we, we might, be in, uh, might be sharing with him. And so James also uh, talked about how instead of following that path of Samson, we have the opportunity to follow the, the narrow path that Jesus laid out for us, uh, a life that leads to, uh, to eternal life rather than eternal destruction. And so today we're going to look at another one of those not-so-hero-ish characters in the Bible, um, a man named Judas Iscariot, who was one of Jesus' 12 original disciples and uh, the man that ultimately betrayed Jesus. And um, this was a little more challenging than I imagined it would be a month or two ago when I thought, you know, Judas would be a cool guy to preach on. Um, so uh, hopefully this is, uh, this is Holy Spirit-led. Um, I didn't study Judas, Judas much when I was growing up. There, there aren't a whole lot of Sunday school lessons on the life of Judas. Um, and, and it's partly because, as Nathan read for us, he, he didn't have a happily ever after ending. Um, it was rather grotesque and probably not good for the, the little Sunday school booklets. Um, 
But I think it's also because it's it's an uncomfortable story when we when we dig in, and it raises some some challenging questions for us. Like, what was going through Judas's mind and heart during this time? Did Judas have a, a saving faith? And if so, did he did he lose that faith? If not, then why did Jesus call him in the first place? Was Judas predestined to make these choices? Was, how do I reconcile that with, with a loving God? And because God has put him in the Bible, we can't just ignore him. And so we have to deal with him and, and try to glean what lessons uh, the Lord has for us in that. And so in looking at, at legacies, it would be very easy to coast past guys like Samson and Judas but the Holy Spirit, um, the Holy Spirit wanted these words to be written for us to read today, and so let's try to unpack it a little bit and um, glean the key lessons that we need to heed from this man's life. Several years ago, when I was um, at my previous firm and I was making the transition from being, I guess, what they would call like a, a sole contributor to a, a manager, um, I was it was it was something I struggled with. I, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and my boss at the time gave me some advice that I think is applicable here. He said, look at the folks around you. Observe the other, the other managers, the other people. And look for one positive traits that you want to, to emulate. And on the flip side, look at things that just you know, make you go, mm, and, and then steer away from those. Let other people's mistakes inform your walk today so that you don't have to make the same mistakes. And I think that argument goes for, for several characters in the Bible, Judas included as well. There are certain traits that we should emulate and there are others that we should steer away from. And so while this is maybe an unexpected or uh, uncomfortable option, Judas definitely left a legacy that we can and, and should, should study with caution. And if you're left yearning for a, a little happier story, uh, next week Tim's coming back to talk about Joseph, so he, he can redeem me there. <clears throat> to briefly summarize the account that was given in the Gospels, Judas was, was one of the twelve, and he was uh, the disciples' money guy. He was their financial advisor. He, he held the money bag. He ultimately betrayed Jesus for, for 30 pieces of silver by arranging for his arrest by, Roman, uh, by Jewish soldiers. Uh, he, was, uh, he helped Jesus uh, go on trial and ultimately be handed over to the Roman soldiers, which led to his crucifixion uh, and resurrection. As we track with the, the life of Judas, we, we see that his faith was ultimately a facade, that he prioritized the allures of this world rather than seizing the invitation to a deep and, and personal relationship with this guy that he was in close proximity in life with every day. We're going to see that Judas must have had some level of belief in, in Jesus, in what he said and did, but he fell short in trusting and obeying him to the point of a, of a saving faith. So as we reflect on Judas's journey this morning, I want us to be proactive in in thinking about how we can cult be cultivating an authentic faith in, in our own hearts. This is going to be kind of like a, a pulse check for each of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. 
So as we go through, I'm going to kind of ask some questions. I'm going to try to give us three internal checkpoints for us to, to reflect on and, and things that we can use to uh, kind of do some business with God today. My first question is, and you don't have to answer this out loud, obviously. Where is my level of passion and commitment in my walk with Jesus today? If we take a step back in the story, Judas was given incredible opportunity. He was given, uh, today we would say the chance of a lifetime, but in actuality it was the chance, uh, it was a once and forever chance. Because he was called to walk with God incarnate in the three years that, he was, that Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. In Mark 3, uh, verses 13 through 15, it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So this invitation wasn't just to, to stand on the sidelines and kind of travel physically with, with this group of people. Judas was one of these 12 that was intentionally chosen to, to be an apostle, which means a messenger or an authorized representative of Jesus. He was empowered to, to speak on Jesus' behalf and, uh, and given authority to perform the, the same miracles that Jesus would. And so while it might be difficult to envision since we know how he ended up, we, we can't discount the fact that at one point, Jesus was, or Judas, I'm going to mix that up a couple times, so apologies. Judas was a successful part of Jesus' earthly ministry. In Mark 6, it talks about Jesus sending out the 12 two by two. And when they came back to give their reports, they, they had healed the sick, they had cast out demons, they had done all this great stuff. And it never says anything about, oh, but one kind of failed. So we have, to, we have to remember that. Judas spent three years with Jesus, packed full of ministry and life. He ate with him. He traveled with him. He probably shared the same dirt floor with him. He was witness to and he partook in miracles that we, we can only read about today. And I would presume that the crowds that followed Jesus, when they, when they looked at, you know, when Jesus traveled from place to place and, you know, who was kind of close by up front, Judas was like one of the crew. He was one of the leaders. He was one of the people that you would say is, you know, holy and, and in that in crowd. He was one of the right-hand guys. And even retrospectively in Acts one seventeen, which Nathan read, Peter reiterates what we saw in those verses from Mark 3. He says, he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. So where did it all go wrong? What did Judas miss that led him to, to the end that we know he had? How could someone that had had such a, an encounter with Jesus, that was immersed in Jesus day in and day out, end up where he did. One thing I think we have to conclude uh, from whatever happened to Jesus, or Judas, is that it was not for lack of involvement or lack of exposure to who Jesus was. 
one author puts it this way. Those privileged to be close to the truth are not necessarily committed to the truth. And for me, that kind of sums up my first two plus decades on this earth. I was born into a Christian home. I, uh, I had uh, parents and grandparents and family that, that proclaimed Jesus. Went to Sunday, uh, Sunday school every week. We prayed before every meal. Um, I, was, um, I was surrounded by the truth. Even over the summers when my uh, family would spend uh, the weekends down on the Maryland Eastern Shore at my grandparents' house, my grandmother every Sunday morning would get out the, the felt board and, and the characters and do the, the Sunday school lesson. Until VeggieTales came around and then we'd pop in the VHS. But, um, you know, I had the gospel knowledge and, and several times during those years I made half-hearted attempts to, um, to redirect my life. But in those times, I wasn't inviting God to really change my heart. Because when it came down to, to brass tacks, I still wanted to do what I wanted to do. All those years, I had great proximity to the truth. And it didn't change anything. It wasn't until years later when I would finally come to a point where I was able to hand over my stuff to God and say, I give you everything that my heart actually began to change. So I'll pose this question again. Where, where did the path turn for Judas? To help uh, inform this perspective, let's look at a scene from John 13 um, when Judas is at the, t- the, the Last Supper table. In verse 21, it says, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, <coughs> Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? These disciples seemed to be clueless which I I think is very interesting. Um, They were shocked because they knew while certain people outside their circle of trust headed out for Jesus, they couldn't comprehend the fact that that Jesus might be betrayed by someone in their inner circle. No one seemed to suspect anybody else around the table, certainly not Judas. You have to remember that Judas was entrusted with the finances, and so he had earned a certain level of confidence with these guys. I would argue that Judas had successfully projected an external image of a life in line with Jesus, but that his heart was never actually transformed by God. So while his exterior told the story that he had it all together, Judas could not hide the condition of his heart from Jesus or from the enemy that was set to take hold of him. The next few verses in John 13 say, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. That phrase gives me chills. 
Satan entered him. And there's a lot of um, a lot of varying thoughts as to what that means. Um, C.S. Lewis said that there are two equally devastating ways that we can think about the devil. We can either have an unhealthy obsession with him, or we can ignore his existence and, and think he's not there. But if you believe in the power of the devil, which the Bible declares, then this should be a terrifying statement. And, and it's also one that, you know, is, is just challenging to, to figure out what it means for me. Was, in the case of Judas, was this a, the devil made me do it situation? Is Judas just the scapegoat for a massive conspiracy against, against Jesus? John Piper explains it this way. <clears throat> Judas was not an innocent bystander when Satan entered into him. As, as Judas sat beside Jesus with his pious religious face and went out and cast out demons in Jesus' name, he was not a righteous lover of Jesus. He loved money. He loved the power and pleasures that that money can buy. Judas's heart certainly wasn't committed to Jesus, and that ended up leading him down a bad path. Judas was a lover of money. He simply followed Jesus for what he could gain out of it. And he covered it with a, a phony external relationship with Jesus. I think in Judas we see how extremely dangerous a lukewarm faith can be. Because as we just observed, Satan operates with power where there is unaddressed habitual sin. So the second check that I want us to, to kind of reflect on is am I proactively identifying and turning away from the sin in my life? There's a scene in John 12 uh, leading up to the Last Supper when Jesus has arrived in Bethany and there's going to be a, a dinner held at Lazarus's house in Jesus's honor. Um, I think Lazarus is returning the favor for that whole bring me back to life thing that Jesus did. Um, and in John 2, uh, 12, 2, it says, Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet, with his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So on the surface to those that were around him, Judas's response may have sounded pious and, and with good intent. But again, it, it helps demonstrate that Judas did not fully understand or did not fully accept who Jesus was. John adds this additional insight that we saw before that Judas was, was greedy, and greedy to the point of stealing from the funds that were entrusted to him by these disciples. Judas likely objected to, to Mary pouring out the perfume because he saw that as dollar signs. 
he argued for the sale and the donation because he knew that that would have fallen into his realm of responsibility and that he could have taken a slice for himself. And so we have to see here that Judas wasn't a one-time shoplifter. The Greek word translated thief here is, is kleptes, which means pilferer or, or embezzler. And so what I think we can infer from this scene is that Judas made a habit of, of skimming off the top and taking advantage of what was entrusted to him by his band of brothers. These guys weren't loaded, but he used that position of, of power and the confidence of his fellow man to further his own selfish motives. And what I think is probably worst of all, we, we get no reason to think that he was remorseful about it. And I think this, this is a, a foreshadowing of, of something more. Um, in, my, in my last role at my previous firm, I ran a team that, um, that was responsible for operational data analytics. And all that means is it's fancy words for looking at a large volume of data and trying to put into words the story that the data is telling. And in that, in that line of business, there are kind of two categories of, um, of metrics, of indicators. One, one's called a lagging indicator. And, what, and this is really just output that you can measure and tells you about the current state of, of whatever you're looking at. <clears throat> tells you where you are today. And then secondly, you have leading indicators, which are more intended to be more predictive and are a little difficult to kind of uh, to quantify sometimes, um, hard to measure, but they, you ultimately try to take them and create a story about where you think you're going. So let me, let me give you an example. Let's say you're trying to lose weight. Your lagging indicator is when you step on the scale, there's my number, that's where I am today. But the leading indicators would be how many calories I consume today versus how many calories I burn in exercise. And while I think for most of us that's kind of hard to measure, those have a direct correlation to where your weight is going to be tomorrow. And so interestingly enough, in this, this description that we get of Jesus in this passage, I see a little bit of both. In a lagging indicator sense, we see that Judas's current state is that he's a thief. That's, that's like part of his identity based on this description. But again, to me, this, has, this habitual sin has a forecasting of something much more dire. It's a leading indicator of a trajectory that's heading towards disaster. Judas may have thought that taking a few bucks here and there wasn't hurting anyone, and, and perhaps it didn't. We know that Jesus could have provided whatever was necessary for that group to, to function on a practical day-to-day -day basis, but that's not the point. Instead of seeking God's power to turn from the sin, Judas allowed these seemingly small compromises to compound and to fester and to become part of his day-to-day -day and who he was. And they laid the groundwork for, for, center to lead, for Satan to lead him down a path that was vastly more sinister. And so we think about, when we think about this, what this means for us today, this is why Jesus has set such a high bar for his followers. In John uh, 14, 15, it, he lays it out pretty clearly. It says, if you love me, obey me. If you love me, obey my commandments. Listen to what I do. Listen to what I say. Do what I say. 
And again, in, in verse 21, he says, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, the Father will love them. So what we see in Judas and what Jesus is saying here is it's not enough to know about God, to know the Bible, to be familiar with Jesus, to put up a, a good external front while leaving our words and our actions unchanged, unimpacted by the power of, of who Jesus is. Jesus' true followers love and obey him. Let me, let me give a clar one clarification here. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us is ever going to measure up to this, this full perfection that Jesus calls us to. Each of us has a unique set of, uh, a unique wiring of brokenness. Um, I bet if you, if you talk to people around the room, if people were open, everybody has a different thing that um, they're tempted in or, or uh, that they, they struggle with. Um, they struggle to turn away from and turn to Jesus. But if we yield to those in a habitual way, it widens the gap between us and Jesus. And it leaves us open to, again, more dire consequences. In the same way that Jesus was, or Judas was, we are presented with hundreds of decisions every day of which, which path we're going to take, what choice we're going to make. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. Judas was a slave to his sinful nature because he never dealt with these seemingly small uh, indiscretions. He let them go. He let them grow and fester and bloom into something worse. But God gives us the Holy Spirit to, to battle against those, uh, those desires of the flesh. So yes, as Christians, we should be compassionate in our pursuit of Jesus, asking him to transform our heart, to conform us more into his likeness every day of our journey with him, and pray for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in that daily walk to resist our sinful nature and protect us from the attacks of the enemy. But what happens when we screw up? And what happens when we screw up bad? I think there are two uh, equally um, negative ways you can handle this. Some of us get racked with guilt and shame. Like, I should know better. How can I not break this? You know, I, I, I can't even go to God because I, I'm so ashamed. Or on the other side, it can be, well, we live under grace. Eh, no big deal. I'm a pretty good person. I don't, I don't mess up that much, but what does it matter? So because we are guaranteed to make mistakes every single day of our life for the rest of our life, the third check that, that I, I need for us to think about is when I screw up, am I abiding in the miraculous grace and mercy that Jesus died to give us? The saddest part of Judas's story is that there's no redemption. Judas hangs himself, and the last that's heard of him, we, we heard in Acts 1, his likely decomposed body fell and guts. It's possible that Judas felt that he was beyond forgiveness, that he could not be redeemed, that he committed a sin beyond 
what God could, uh, could love. And that the weight of his actions was just too much for him to bear. And so he took his own life. It's tragic because, remember, this is a guy who was there when Jesus talked about leaving the 99 and going after the one. This is a guy that was sitting there as Jesus talked about the parable of the prodigal son. This guy that had squandered everything he was given, shamed his family, and when he went, went home, he was received with open arms for the party. And it never sunk in for Judas. He never understood that. For all he heard and experienced with his time with Jesus, Judas's last and most dire fail was not understanding the indescribable length and height and width and depth of God's love for him, for us. Let's be clear on one point, though, as, as we, we close. While Judas is often discounted as the evil guy that set the cha uh, chains in motion for Jesus to be put on the cross and crucified, Jesus didn't end up on the cross because of Judas. Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. Because our sins needed to be paid for if we were going to have relationship with him. Because we needed redemption and to be rescued from the power and the death of sin. Jesus died not because Judas betrayed him. Yes, that was a part of the story. But Jesus died so that we could be reconciled to the Father. He opened the door for us to have life-giving relationship as sons and daughters of the Most High God. But although he experienced more of Jesus than any of us really will in this life, Judas did not avail himself of that relationship. And he instead allowed his sinful desires to take him a different way. If we hear nothing else this morning, I want every one of us to know that God's mercy and grace and love for us is vaster and more comprehensive than anything any of us could ever do. His love screams out for us that we are never too far away. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And no matter how many times we get lost, he's always waiting with open arms to welcome us back. Paul in Romans 10, I think, um, articulates the, the glorious simplicity of approaching Jesus this way. When he talks about, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no qualifiers. There's no disqualifiers. So I'm going to pray for us in a minute. But I'd ask that um, we take a minute or two of, of quiet reflection. 
And I'll ask you to, to ponder these, these questions again. How devoted am I to my Lord and Savior Jesus today? Where do I have some unresolved sin that I need to, to hand over? What, what business do I need to do with God today? And even if I'm feeling all right there, Lord, show me in new ways the depth of your love for me. Help me to never lose hold of the depth of your love for me. So take a minute or two and I will uh, pray for us in just a minute. Father God, thank you that you made a way for us. Thank you that you give us these examples in your word to be able to learn from. Father, I pray that the story of Judas would be one that is convicting and encouraging us towards deeper relationship with you. Lord, you tell us that when we draw near to you, draw near to us. And Father, I pray wherever we are on that journey today, that we would take another step towards you. That we would immerse ourselves in the beauty and the majesty of what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. Renew our passion for you today. 